0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School.
1: This is Work and Life on Business Radio.
0: Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. This is a conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, family, community, our society, and your private self, what's just uniquely you, your mind, body, and spirit. And... We're trying to bring you useful knowledge on how to find a bit more harmony among those different aspects of life. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I am the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and also of our leadership program. I now run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. You can find out about it at totalleadership.org. There's information there on how we help people and organizations find greater harmony, and improve performance in all the different parts of life. There's free book chapters, articles, videos, tools of all sorts there at totalleadership.org. New episodes of our show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern time here on SiriusXM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. Well, now, the presidential election has been decided, although one of our candidates is having a hard time accepting that reality as we record today, let us turn our attention to what a new administration, a Biden administration, might mean for working parents, for our society, for overcoming racial injustice, and for creating a more fair and just society. What policies might be on the horizon that can help us take care of our families, ourselves? What can we do to create a different kind of conversation in our culture to ensure equal access to opportunity for men and women of all sorts? Human rights, women's rights, with respect to control of their bodies? Will Roe v. Wade be overturned? What about the systemic racism and gender bias at work in other parts of our life, our lives? Does Kamala Harris's remarkable achievement really mean that we've moved the needle on anything? Hmm. My guest today has a a range of ideas and uh, remarkable expertise on a number of these topics and more. So we'll be touching on a number of different issues today with Joan C. Williams, who is, I'm glad to say, back on our program. Joan is the Distinguished Professor of Law, the Hastings Foundation Chair, and Founding Director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings Law. Welcome, Joan.
1: Delighted to be here, Stu.
0: Let me say a little bit more about your background before we jump into the conversation. Uh, Joan Williams has played a central role in reshaping the conversation about work, gender, and class over the past quarter century. And her pathbreaking work helped to create the field of work family studies and modern workplace flexibility policies. She's one of the 10 most cited scholars in this field and has written eleven books, including the influential "What Works for Women at Work" in 2014, which she wrote with her daughter, Rachel Dempsey. Uh, her awards include the Families and Work Institute's Work-Life Legacy Award, which I'm proud to say I've also won. So we're in a we're in that club together, Joan. Uh, the American Bar Association, the American Bar Foundation's Outstanding Scholar Award the ABA's Margaret Brent Women Award for Lawyers of Achievement. And her Harvard Business Review article, which we are going to be talking about uh, the book version of, which the book is called White Working Class. The article was called What So Many People Don't Get About the U.S. Working Class, which came out just after the 2016 election, uh, presidential election, has been read over 3.7 million times and is now the most read article in HBR's history. Joan, um, thank you again for for coming back on the show. Let's uh, let's start with that one. Um, your book, White Working Class: Overcoming Class Clueless, Cluelessness in America, is an elaboration of that remarkable uh, HBR piece. Um, what's what's the big idea in that piece let's start with that and and why why are they uh, the why is a French publisher publishing it today
1: <laughs> the big idea is that politics in the United States and actually in Europe too has been driven further and further to the right um, by the what's called cultural voting because there uh, there's a big, culture gap between two specific groups in the United States, the professional managerial elite, roughly the top 16%, and then the broad middle classes, roughly the middle 53%. In the professional managerial elite, and as a professor, I'm definitely part of that, with the focus is on self-development, because that's what we need. For our jobs to be successful, we need to be at the top of our game. We need to be able to be have the courage to be disruptive. Um, we need so we focus on issues that are related to self development, um, including you know LGBTQ issues is a really good example because everyone's entitled to full self development and includes sexual self development. So that's the professional managerial elite. Among the um, basically the fragile and failing middle class um, in the United States and abroad, the focus is very different. It's on um, self-discipline, the kind of self-discipline that gets you up and to work on time every day without an attitude to an often not very uh, fulfilling job. And so there's, they hold um, those folks hold in very high esteem traditional institutions that aid self-discipline, religion, family values, the military, just the kind of institutions that the professional managerial elite um, tends to be quite scornful of. And so what um, it used to be both in Europe and in the United States that the left was very focused on economic issues, unions and blue collar men. Mm -hmm. Um, And then around 1970, um, the left began to focus more on cultural issues um, stemming from this class culture gap. And in fact, um, what uh, people uh, on the right soon recognized is that any new issue that arose like climate change got subsumed into this culture wars context. Mm. So that's the analysis of the book that that, that what is driving a politics in both the United States and in much of Europe is this conflict between the professional managerial elite and the fragile and failing middle-class.
0: And how did you see that play out in the most recent presidential election? that is still not yet entirely resolved?
1: Well, in 2016, the reason that Trump won was because uh, a group of this fragile and failing middle class in the Rust Belt states struck, uh, swung sharply for Trump and delivered Wisconsin, Michigan, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and <clears throat> so um, what happened this time is that uh, Democrats siphoned off enough of those white working class voters so that Democrats won in Michigan and Wisconsin, ultimately um, in Pennsylvania. But as always in the United States, class is really an important part of the story, but race never, never isn't, right? Um, right? And so the other thing that happened both in, in 2016 was that African-Americans in, for example, Michigan stayed home. This time African-Americans turned out. And so what we really see Democrats had this time was a race class coalition, huge turnout <clears throat> among people of color and um, siphoning off enough of that white working class vote to win in the electoral college.
0: What changed in your view uh, with respect to uh, you know grasping uh, what it is about the white working class uh, this time in the Biden campaign that was missing in the Clinton campaign?
1: Well, Clinton um, was really class clueless. I mean, I voted for her, but, you know basically t- the basket of deplorables was <clears throat> the most obvious example. Mm-hmm. Um, and coming on, um, on Obama's you know, that people, uh, people in the heartland cling to guns and religion. So, um, there was just a literal belittling of mm-hmm. um, blue collar Americans, um, which they were understandably furious about. Uh, Biden comes from a blue collar town Sprint, yeah. and comes from an economic a background where his dad came home and told him he'd gotten fired. Um, Biden has long union ties. So Biden really understands how to talk to this group. Um, uh, for example, I'll just give you one quote. I, I've dealt with guys like Donald Trump my whole life. Who look down on us because we don't have a lot of money or our parents didn't go to college, Mm -hmm. guys who think they're better than you, guys who inherit everything they've gotten in their life and then squander it. So that is a good example of Biden really connecting to this group and saying to them, hey, Biden, uh, uh, Trump is a spoiled rich boy. Don't be Trump, don't be tricked by him. He's not one of you. I'm one of you. And so um, Biden got that dignitary. Uh, theme exactly right and then biden
0: say dignitary? also t- sorry you say dignitary theme
1: yeah yeah i mean um the uh one of the reasons that the white working class um voted for trump is that he he said um i love the poor, poorly educated that they felt so insulted in 2016 that that was the connection they made of like great he loves me but I mean, the poorly educated, so Biden actually knows how to talk to these people mm-hmm. so that they feel that their their lives are being appreciated as lives with dignity, rather than just that they're deplorables. So dignity, the dignity theme is the first thing that Bi- Biden dis- did right. And then the second theme he did is talked about jobs, jobs, and by the way, more jobs, because... Mm-hmm. What really drives, I think, the the class anger that has delivered us delivered us Trump in the first place, and seventy million people just voted for him again, um, is that uh, you know mo- uh, in my generation, virtually all of Americans did better than their parents. Yeah. But among those born in nineteen eighty, only about half will. We've uh, we've seen the disappearance of the American dream. And the people who are attracted to Trump, they're the other half. They're the other half whose fathers and grandfathers had solid blue collar jobs where they could deliver a stable middle-class life. And now those jobs have disappeared. And so uh, Biden talked about jobs and jobs and more jobs.
0: Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio. Thank you for listening. It's Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Stu Friedman, your host, and my guest today is Joan C. Williams, who is Distinguished Professor of Law and Founding Director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings Law. Yes, the the, the decline of the uh, American aspiration towards a better life uh, is, is, is uh, underlying so much of the... Uh, angst alienation, uh, fear uh, that that is all too pervasive in our culture today What's been the reaction to to your book white working class both here and abroad again uh, you, you were you were going um, to tell me about the publication in in France just today What what, what made it so popular? What, what, what was the nerve that it touched?
1: After the election, I mean, m- m- I, my, my crowd was like, what, what happened? That was after the Trump's election I'm like, mm-hmm. and even after this election, um, a one commentator one op-ed in the New York Times um, said like, oh my God, 70 million people voted for him again? I don't even understand my country. And so what my book provides is um, an explanation of what's going on. Uh, the book was, um, I think, quite influential and quite, in, quite controversial. First influential, then controversial. Um, I, I like to think that I helped start a conversation about social class in America, which is kind of implausible. That's amazing. Um, But then about two years after Trump was elected.
0: Yeah, let me jump in here and ask what you meant by it being amazing that it's implausible.
1: Well, you know, we have a strong ideology in the United States that anyone can get ahead Mm -hmm. and that um, hard work pays off. Mm -hmm. And that we don't have social classes by like old bad Europe. Mm -hmm. So it's been very difficult in the United States to talk about social class Mm -hmm. without being met with the um, response of like, that doesn't apply here in America. Mm -hmm. We don't really have social class here in America.
0: Because we have unimpeded mobility.
1: Yeah, anyone who works hard can get ahead. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: We don't have an entrenched aristocracy like they do in Europe.
0: So by identifying the class structure that is real in it's uh, uh, inhibiting effects on mobility in our culture, you were uh, contributing to the opening up that conversation.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um,
0: Thank you. And And, and so now on the so influential and and what did you say? Controversial.
1: First influential, then controversial. Uh and then about two years after um, Trump was elected, there was a series of studies saying what um, explains the vote for Trump was not economic anxiety, it was status anxiety mm-hmm. and um, racial anxiety. And the um, among a certain important, very influential element of the professional managerial elite, really, uh, elite is like, Oh, this isn't about class. This is about race. Um, the the reason that that is, um, uh, and so that was very comforting. Of like, we don't even have to deal with these people. We don't have to treat these people as if their anger is justified. They are just racists. And the whole conversation about class largely shut down. Um, and ah,
0: because it could be swept under the rug of racism being the real cause of these their- people
1: are just racist. We don't even need to try to understand them
0: from a class point of view.
1: From a class point of view, we don't, and especially we don't need to try to understand their critique of the professional managerial elite. Mm. That would be us.
0: Oh, no, I don't want to look in that mirror.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> so. And all of a sudden, the whole conversation about class largely shut down, Mm -hmm. um, which is not surprising. That's the history of conversations about class in America. Um, I think the simple answer is that this is about class. It is also about race. These are not mutually exclusive categories. Mm -hmm. Um, What you have in my view is uh, this group in the fragile and failing middle class seeing their futures, uh, seeing the American dream disappearing and they are being given an explanation by people on the far right that this is because you are white. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in my view, it's because you're they were working class, not because they were white. Mm-hmm. But that conversation Sort of uh, uh, really foundered because once people decided these folks were racist, they decided they didn't need to listen to them anymore.
0: Mm. They could just be written off as what?
1: As stupid racists who voted for a clown. Um, so, I mean, Therefore that, not
0: worth engaging in any sort of meaningful conversation.
1: Well, in fact, you would we'd be unethical if you did engage. Engage them because you would be harboring racism rather than calling it out. Now, you know, I do. I have never maintained that that racism is not part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Again, there is been a strategy actually in the U.S. since the 17th century of talking to um, working class whites it's called the wages of whiteness strategy. It was named by actually E.B. W.B. Dubois, that's how, um, Bois. that's how old this strategy is. Um, And saying, well, um, you may be, and I use this insult in quotes, white trash, Mm -hmm. but at least you're white. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you may be disenfranchised by class, but you are on the high end of the pecking order by race and that the wages of whiteness strategy is exactly what the far right is using. Mm -hmm. Now, so the question is, is the most effective response to that strategy to say you people are stupid racists Mm -hmm. or that we understand you're angry but you're angry because you have been uh, victimized economically because you're working class, not because you're white. (laughs) People of color have also been victimized economically and worse, by the way.
0: Right. And and this is, to come back to your earlier assessment, uh, part of the reason for the success of the Biden-Harris campaign.
1: Well, what the Biden-Harris campaign showed is that this is a false dichotomy. This, is this about race? Is this about class? It's about both. Mm-hmm. And the assumption had been Either we have to choose uh, on the left between people of color and doing right by them, or the white working class and reengaging them. And what the election showed is that that's a false dichotomy. Um, you uh, you had a one of the, the reasons that Biden won. There's a number of ways to cut the apple, always are, but um, because of huge turnout and support among people of color, although that differed sharply among different groups. But much more so than white people. And because Democrats peeled off enough of the white working class to win in the Rust Belt, to win in Michigan, in Wisconsin, in uh, Pennsylvania. So perhaps. Excuse me. But then also that Democrats also mobilized people of color so that they won in Arizona which was a stunning victory um, in terms of the history of republicanism in Arizona. And so Arizona was the mobilizing people of color, Wisconsin, Miss, Michigan, and Pennsylvania was peeling off enough of the white working class and getting African-Americans out to vote. Mm-hmm.
0: What, what does this all say for to, to those people now looking at a more micro uh, level within organizations um, for those in the elite uh, for how they go about their work uh, as managers, as executives, and how they think about the challenges of uh, creating an inclusive workplace that that capitalizes on all the, the human assets that are part of that group or organization?
1: Um, Okay, well, before I answer that important question, I'll also say that the other amazing thing that happened this this year was Georgia, which was another Uh, example of mobilizing people of color, specifically mm -hmm, mm African-Americans. In terms of how to create an inclusive environment, I think one of the critiques I have made of the diversity, equity, and inclusion establishment of which I am a part, by the way. (laughs) So this is a critique made with affection from the inside is that um, the DEI establishment has been all about race and all about gender, really important vectors of inequality in the United States. Um, And our studies have shown again and again and again in very concrete detail, exactly how, racial and gender inequality play out in the workplace. Um, But uh, the that often there's a failure to acknowledge that social class is also a vector of inequality that plays out in um, workplaces uh, in important ways. And I'll just remind you of one uh, my single favorite study. It was a study that compared identical resumes of white men, Mm -hmm. same qualifications, Mm -hmm. different hobbies. So that one of the resumes listed polo, sailing, and classical music. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the other uh, resume listed pickup, soccer, country music, and counseling first-generation college students. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Polo got 12 times the number of callbacks as Mr. First Generation. Um, That is how powerful social class Mm -hmm. shapes our workplaces. And so if you have a conversation about diversity, and you're focused exclusively on gender and race, and talk about white men as privileged, then white men who are first generation are going to be just extremely angry, angry, and very alienated. And in fact, uh, in our we have a, 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 a bias training that's uh, pretty different from most bias trainings um and in that it gets people talking about presents the evidence and it gets people talking about how they might interrupt the bias in ways that would feel comfortable to them
0: let me interrupt you Joan okay to, to say that we need to take a short break here sounds and good when we come back Uh, I want to hear, and I know our listeners are going to be interested in hearing more about this uh, approach that you have developed based on science about uh, interrupting bias. So let's just take a minute here. Um, Please don't go away. When we come back, I'll be continuing my conversation with Joan C. Williams. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life
1: on Business Radio.
0: Welcome back to Work and Life. So glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman, and my guest today is Joan C. Williams. She is the Distinguished Professor of Law and Founding Director of the Center for Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings Law. Joan, just before the break, we were talking about bias interrupters, which I interrupted you talking about. So now that (laughs) we're back, um, tell us what is that approach uh, and, and the science on which it's based?
1: Okay, biased interrupters is an evidence-based approach. Um, too often when it comes to uh, diversity and inclusion, DEI issues, we think that, for, for example, like systemic racism as it plays out in organizations can be remedied by having a deep, sincere conversation. And my attitude is like, no, that's not how racism plays out in organizations. Um, it plays out to so such that some groups have to prove themselves more than others. It plays out such that some groups' politics are a lot more complicated than others. Um, and so what, what you, you need to do... What do you do, mean
0: by that, some groups' politics are more complicated? Can you...
1: Well, I I mean, to use a shorthand, a certain um, white male in group just needs to be authoritative and ambitious. But every other group needs to be authoritative and ambitious in a way that's seen as acceptable by that group. So women walk a tightrope between being seen as either too meek or um, too abrasive. Mm. People of color are often who are assertive are often written off as too angry if they're black, as too emotional if they're Latinx, or even as untrustworthy if they're Asian Americans. Um, so that it's the technical name is prescriptive bias, but um, that's what. So so all of those groups can be authoritative and ambitious, but they have to be um, authoritative and ambitious in a way that controls for backlash, whereas. White men in the in-group, they just have to be <laughs> authoritative and ambitious. That's actually a lot easier. Um, so- um, that's,
0: that's an essential aspect of privilege is not even knowing, of course, that um, you have that freedom.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, for example, to express, we get a big um, divergence In I feel free to express anger when it's justified. White men far more than any other group um, answer yes. Mm -hmm. So bias interrupters starts from that kind of fine-grained study of how bias plays out in everyday workplace interactions. And um, then we have two different approaches. One I was talking about before, which we call the individual bias interrupters workshop. Um, As I was describing, we present the evidence and then we give people an example. Here's an example of how bias plays out. How would you interrupt it? one of the things that I have done in that workshop is highlighted that social class is also playing out. And I have literally seen white men who are kind of looking out the window with their chairs tilted away from me. When I talk about social class, turn their chairs around and be attentive. It's Mm -hmm. really important to include class privilege along with racial, gender, and heteronormative privilege. And not that hard, by the way. So that's the individual bias interrupters workshop, which gets like wildly high reviews from people. Why is um, it- why, why? I think because you're not ta- having a deep, sincere conversation about social inequality. You're talking about evidence. Here's a problem. How can you solve it? People go like, okay, that's what I do. I solve problems. So they give concrete ways that they're gonna interrupt bias going forward. And something like 90% of people say they learned um, important ways to interrupt bias. And three-fourths typically say they're going to use them going forward.
0: Can you give an example of what such an an example might be?
1: Yeah, I mean, the easiest example to explain is what we call the stolen idea. uh, the interview, the um, the item, the survey item is: Other people get credit for an idea I originally offered. We get big differentials both by race and by gender. And so you say you've just seen it, the stolen idea. How would you interrupt it? And people come up with things like, "Oh, you know, I've been thinking about that idea, Stu, ever since Joan first said it. You've added something really intriguing, Stu. I wonder if this is the next step." So yeah. what people want is kind of light touch ways of interrupting bias that don't require them to spend too much political capital and will actually mm. work in their environment. So they're going like, they're so relieved, like, okay, now I see it. And now I know what to do. It's just like, phew, they love it.
0: Yeah, very practical. Now, is the stolen idea phenomenon also, is that, does that cut by class as well? Or is we it more have, we now,
1: industry? as I, I'm a data geek. We now have data. Uh, Ask me in a month. We have data from a large organization that had a lot of first-generation professionals. So we're going to be able to see for the very first time. Um, We have a a, a first-generation
0: white people.
1: White, well, people, first-generation people of all races.
0: But you're able to look at the class or. We are going to be
1: able to. Yes. Um, for the first time, we've used this, um, we have a simple 10 minute climate survey that picks up every basic pattern by race, gender, age, class, and disability. It's been used on national samples, but it's also used as an organizational survey. And now we have a beautiful data set from a large organization. We're gonna be able to answer that question about class. All right. So that's individual bias interrupters, but in some ways more important are the organizational bias interrupters. Um, Because one of the things that we understand now uh, about systemic racism is that it's systemic. In order to address systemic racism, you have to change systems. Um, If you have a problem of diversity, it's typically because you have these subtle forms of bias, like the stolen idea, playing out through your basic business systems in hiring, in performance evaluations, in access to opportunities. And so the other major part of the bias interrupters model is to use the evidence, measure what bias is playing out, develop metrics, developed, ev- developed simple evidence-based tweaks to the organizational systems, and then measure again. Look at the metrics to see if you've improved. In other words, instead of handling systemic racism sexism and the rest of it through a single deep conversation you change the system and what we have now we're working um with organizations to do exactly that so i'll just give you one quick example
0: after, after i just remind listeners this is work in life on business radio Sirius XM 132 i'm your host Stu Friedman i'm speaking with Joan C Williams who is distinguished professor of law and founding director of the Center of Work-Life Law at the University of California, Hastings Law. Please give us an example of bias interrupters at the systems level.
1: So we did an analysis of one organization's performance evaluations and found all the predictable patterns of bias by race and gender, including that only 9.5% of the people of color's evaluations mentioned leadership. And of course, leadership mentions were predicted promotion. That was actually 70 points lower than leadership mentions for white women. Mm -hmm. And so we did two simple things. We redesigned the performance evaluation form. And we did literally a a one-hour workshop. Um, And we went back in year two. And 100% of the evaluations of people of color mentioned leadership. Um, the other thing that, not was that
0: complicated,
1: not that hard. One year, one year. Wow. Now, things aren't perfect. This the, the other part, right, things aren't perfect yet in this organization or probably any other life isn't perfect. So the other element of the bias interrupters model is that it's iterative. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now they still have a really, you know, some prove it again problems. So now we're going to, as a second iteration, try to address those prove it again problems. Um, But the the message really to CEOs is simple, that to solve your DEI problem, you need to use the same tools as you use to solve any other problem, data, metrics, and an iterative process. And I think that's going to come as a relief to CEOs to know that they're um, not expected to have a deep and earnest conversations about feelings, which is, after all, kind of not their sweet spot.
0: That's, I suppose, generally true, uh, but not entirely. But I'm not going to debate that with you. I I take your main point, which is that this is a a tool for creating meaningful change in incremental ways that it's based on the realities of what is holding back uh, the advance of um, real real equality and inclusion. I'm going to come back at the, at the end of the show for, to ask you more about how people can find out about bias interrupters, but I want to turn in this next part of our conversation to the pandemic and what's happening, especially in our families and especially for women uh, in families, uh, now that we are eight or nine months into uh, the lockdown and all its associated Uh, disruptions in our lives. What's your take, Joan?
1: Well, my take is we're really going to find out now whether people actually care about retaining and advancing women. Um, Because if they care, they are having to adjust to the fact that um, many mothers are now doing at least three people's jobs. They're doing their own jobs. They're doing their childcare workers jobs. And they're doing significant parts of their children's teachers' jobs as well. And that's not even counting elder care. And so, um, what we did, um, reports have come out that um, roughly 80% of women say they're doing most or all of the housework and homeschooling. 70% of women say they're doing most or all of the child care. Um, there was a real hope at first that because men were at home, that all of the invisible things that women do around the house would become visible and would be um, more equally shared. And that has definitely happened in some families, but not in most. Mm -hmm. And so what we see now, particularly with um, an ineffectual government that has been unable to uh, open schools, unlike in many other countries, Um, we are really facing a generational wipeout uh, of mother's careers. And um, according to one study, although I'm not sure I trust these numbers, yet one out of four mothers is considering downshifting or taking a career break. One of the things I would say to mothers who are in that position is that I I know how hard it is. I know that what uh, month after month just feels almost impossible. Um, but that uh, I have to tell you that the economic consequences of taking that little career break can be very, very severe mm-hmm. because your family gets used to you doing everything and it's very difficult to return. There are also often, uh, although I don't defend this, suspicion of women who are returning. Um, so it's really it's really worthwhile um, trying to hang in there and trying to insist on on fair play. And I would really um, recommend Eve Rodsky's book if you're facing challenges in fair allocation of household tasks. But for organizations, the message is um, parents generally, and mothers in particular, are um, in a truly no-win situation. And for example, now with performance evaluations coming up in many organizations, organizations are really gonna have to be analytical about what constitutes good performance during the pandemic. Mm. If it is is delivering a hundred percent of what people were delivering before the pandemic, then that's just a recipe for wiping mothers out of your workforce. And I guess you never did care. So to the...
0: uh to the individual manager who might not be able to alter in a significant way the a larger organization's performance management system, what do you advise?
1: I think that you should um, evaluate people on the quality of their work, mm-hmm. not on the quantity. Otherwise, you are designing your performance management for um, the ideal worker who has immunity to household work. In Mm -hmm. other words, only breadwinners need apply.
0: And and to the individual mother who is now trying to find her way in this mess, I, I will definitely pursue Eve Rodsky's book uh, to learn more about what she has to say about this, but from what you have seen and what you know, what, what um, guidance can you offer?
1: Well, I mean, I think the reason that Eve Rodsky's book is so important is that she points out again, that if you're having a problem um, uh, in the household with a fair play, What you need is not a deep and earnest conversation. You need a system. Mm -hmm. Um, And she develops a system, a very concrete, low key system Mm -hmm. to equalize who does what in the household. Too often, we have gotten into endless discussions, and I'm not saying this didn't happen to me about what's fair and will you do this and do that. No, uh uh. This is not an earnest conversation situation. This is another conversation of, This is another instance in which the solution for structural inequality, for systemic inequality is changing the system.
0: Can you give an example of what that looks like?
1: Well, um, actually, Eve has this wonderful system of of describing all of the tasks that needed Uh to be done in the household and literally putting them on cards and then having people, both the adults and the children, choose cards with accountability.
0: Doesn't seem that complicated. That's the second yeah. time I've said that in this conversation. It's Joan. Why, why do I keep saying secret?
1: that? Why you know, do I keep saying it? You know, um, I mean, the the tragic death of George Floyd, I, help, I hope has helped white Americans understand that to address systemic inequality, you need to change systems.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Which is not to say that at the local level, uh, you're helpless. I, I take no. that from your message as well.
1: Well, I mean, this is, the, the, I'm talking about, you know, trying to get your husband to do more. So that's pretty local. <laughs>
0: yes, that's, that's, what I, that's what I meant. You said it much better. Is there, other is there other insights from the book you did with Rachel Dempsey, your daughter, about mm-hmm. what works for women at work that are relevant for working families today?
1: Very much so. I mean, the the first, that that book basically pointed out that there are four basic patterns of gender bias. We've mentioned um, two of them. One is prove it again, that women have to prove themselves more than men. Um, The second is the tightrope, that women walk a tightrope between being seen as too assertive and therefore difficult or abrasive or too meek and therefore Um, Lacking executive presence and um, just doesn't have what it takes. That's the second. The third we've also talked about, which is gender bias based on motherhood. Um, And we actually run, as you know, at the Center for Work-Life Law, uh, a hotline for mothers who encounter um, discrimination based on caregiving responsibilities and fathers too. And we've had a 250% increase in callers reporting Um, discrimination based on motherhood Uh, and then the fourth
0: since since the pandemic
1: began during the pandemic during the pandemic yeah we have we there we haven't there was an uh, I wrote an op at the New York Times they titled it horror stories of pandemic motherhood Of what's happening to mothers during the pandemic so if people are encountering countering discrimination that hotline is a is a is a resource. And so what work
0: life law, and I'm going to ask you about that when we wrap up in just a few minutes.
1: Yeah, this, the Center for Work Life Law Laws Hotline. I'll get the um, actual number in a minute. Okay. Um, so what's happening, unfortunately, during the pandemic is that all of this has gotten worse. I hate to say, um, discrimination against mothers. There have been um, now 23 lawsuits stew um, uh, f- uh, filed during the pandemic, alleging discrimination. Um, against mothers uh, due to pandemic conditions. Mm. Um, um, The prove it again, one of the things that that, uh, produces the prove it again problem is in-group favoritism, that if you have a very specific demographic at the top, their networks tend to be of people of the same demographic and they tend to favor people within their networks That has gotten worse because Mm. it used to be, you could at least hear about that wonderful assignment, walking down the hall. Now it all happens on a Zoom call where you're not even there. Mm. And so um, what we see, what we hear again and again, actually is, um, and it's especially for people of color, but also robustly for women, is that it was hard to get kind of the glamor work before, and now it's much harder.
0: Because of this, this cloistering or siloing that is, that is yeah. embedded in Zoom life.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, um, I wonder
0: if that's also true for the, the class barriers.
1: I assume it is true. Absolutely. Because these in-group favoritism networks of like, um, like, like, likes, like, they also have exclusionary effects by social class origin as well as race and gender.
0: Because you can probably still play polo in the pandemic.
1: There you go. There you go. There you go. Um, yacht to yacht, uh, uh, Zoom, right? Uh, and, um, and so this tightrope is also harder for both women and people of color, because if you think, I've actually been working a lot with New York law firms, and you know, they do everything by, it used to be by phone, now it's by Zoom. If it's hard to break in you know, a um, a sort of a dominant white guy can just go like, "No effing way, we're going to do this," and that's socially appropriate. Mm-hmm. But um, if a black man does that, it may be seen as, "Oh, he's angry, he's got a chip on his shoulder." That's mm-hmm. the racial bias. Mm-hmm. Or if a woman does that, it may be seen as like, "Whoa, she's a bit much." Um, it's mm-hmm. not seen as socially appropriate, and it's it people are reporting that it's even harder. On Zoom, yeah, yeah. So it's all gotten worse.
0: Well, so what? So how is your bias interrupters approach need to adjust to Zoom life?
1: Well, I mean, we've done a lot of studies and actually have a number of webinars on um, the impacts of COVID for DEI um, and um, by code we call them COVID bias interrupters. Um, and I'll just give one um, one example mm-hmm. um, on um, on uh, one of the things that's really a great resource for people running meetings is the chat box, people who often find they can't get a word in edgewise, either because of race or gender or class or do simply because they're introverts mm-hmm. or a little shyer. Mm-hmm. Um, they, uh, they will often feel a lot more comfortable offering an idea through the chat box. And if the people the person running the meeting, it can monitor the chat box and say, you know, hey, Tim, I thought that was a really interesting question, uh, really interesting point. Do you want to jump in and tell us a little bit more about it? The chat, I call it chat boxes equalizer. Um, in my classes, I actually get more partici- class participation almost a hundred percent and a far broader demographic of class participation now than I ever have in my 40 years of teaching. I love it.
0: (laughs) Me too. Me too. We need another hour on that topic because what you're describing is exactly what I'm experiencing. Yeah. No, it's amazing. The same way you've given me language now to help understand it. Oh, Joan, there's so much more I want to talk with you about, but we are out of time here, but I can't leave without asking for at least a 30-second statement about your highly publicized and rather Mm -hmm. controversial note about Roe v. Wade in in The Times. Can you just give us a 30-second version of why you wrote what you did?
1: Um, I wrote what I did because Roe v. Wade is toast. Um, We lost. Um, We had actually lost, and I speak as a pro-choice person, the abortion debate even before the um, appointment of the new Supreme Court justice. There is no abortion clinic in 90% of American counties, and over 90% of abortions take place in abortion clinics. And so um, one of the things that I think is important to recognize is that either Roe v. Wade would either be explicitly overruled or it, we will continue the death by a 1,000 cuts. Roe v. Wade was basically toast as of last June because of a, a specific Supreme Court opinion, and so anybody who is, uh, a, a, and I certainly am, very committed to access to abortion, rather than coat hangers, we we're going to have to start to organize. And I'll just mention one group. It's called Women on Wave. Women uh, on Waves, where they too much.
0: Yeah, well, uh, this is... Uh,
1: sorry, okay. 30 We're seconds, have, so 30 are, seconds. <laughs> uh,
0: Unfortunately, out of time. Uh, and I no. apologize for that. That's my fault. But
1: No, no, I, no. I told I, you that. I told you not to focus on abortion. Can well, still, like, um,
0: seconds? Joan, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Where's the best place for listeners to learn more about the remarkable work that you are doing at the Center for Work-Life
1: Law? Um, Well, certainly the the Bias Interrupters website, www.biasinterrupters, or if you need help to call our helpline, it's 415-703-8276.
0: And and the Center for Work-Life Law, how do people find out more about the various wonderful projects you're doing there?
1: Just Google Center for Work-Life Law, -law. Uh, -law worklifelaw.org.
0: Joan, thank you again for taking the time to speak with me and our audience. I am a great admirer of of what you do and uh, really grateful to you for your remarkable contributions to the quest for a freer and more just society. Thank you very, very much.
1: Right back at you, Stu. Thank you. It was a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us, folks. If you don't uh, have an opportunity to listen in at this hour, 5 p.m. Eastern, when we are airing for the first time, uh, you can listen throughout the week. You can also find an edited version of the show on the totalleadership.org site. If you have a question about the show, you can write to me, freebunoutwharton.upenn.edu. Thanks, Patty Hall for producing our show. And thanks most of all to you for listening. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.